ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Xanthi Mellet is here today. Xanthi is a forensic anthropologist and a criminologist and she lectures at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales. Xanthi is a specialist in the identification of human remains and her research has focused in the past on understanding the biometric details of the human face in particular. Xanthi's work has also contributed to identifying sex offenders by comparing a suspect's anatomy to an image of the offender to determine whether two people are one and the same. Her work has led to criminal convictions and prosecutions, but she's also used DNA evidence to help exonerate people who've been wrongfully convicted over the years. And she's particularly interested in how human bias can play a part in cases where mothers are accused of killing their children. Now, just a heads up, we are going to be talking, of course, about some cold cases that are a bit grisly in nature, just in case that's not your cup of tea. Xanthi is the author of several books on crime and forensics, and she was a contributor to the UK crime TV series, History Cold Case. Hi, Xanthi. Hi. So, in the nature of your work over the years, some remains are found, the police are brought to the scene, the cause of death is not clear. At what point are you typically brought into cases like these? So forensic anthropologists generally are experts in helping to identify somebody from their bones largely. So they would normally be called in either to a scene if there's the police need assistance with the recovery of those human remains um, or in the lab to determine some biological factors such as age, sex, um, geographical ancestry and height because that helps the police narrow down those remains against a missing person's database um, to see whether they can help identify them. And we also look at things like pathology and trauma, evidence of those on the remains themselves. So if somebody's been stabbed, for example, even if there's no soft tissue left, there may be evidence of sharp force trauma on the remains that a forensic anthropologist could identify. How small in particular and minute can this get? Because there's a whole universe in human bones, isn't there? There is. Everyone's got a story in their bones. It's true. So yeah, the the evidence can be absolutely minute. Um, We could look for fractures in the hyoid bone, for example, in the throat to demonstrate that somebody may have been strangled. So yes, the evidence can be very small. Um, Great attention to detail is required. And human disease as well, that can be found within the remains of of human bones, can't it? It can, if the disease has been present long enough for there to be actually uptake in, in the bones. If you think the bones, everyone thinks of them as kind of static tissues that don't change, but actually they're very dynamic. They're changing all the time, they heal, um, and they do show evidence of pathology and trauma and disease. But you've got to survive a disease long enough for it to actually show in your bones. If it kills you too quickly, there won't be any evidence for a forensic anthropologist to identify. If you're brought to the scene of the crime, do you have to sort of steal yourself before you go in? Do you have to sort of go, oh God, here we go? I've always been very good at compartmentalising. So um, I've seen some things that I guess people would consider very unpleasant over the years, but I'm very good at doing my job. It's a puzzle. I have, a, I, you know, I have questions to answer. I have evidence to provide that can assist the police and then I don't think about it afterwards. I'm good at kind of shutting that off. Yeah, uh, when I think back to things, incidents in my life which have been like, you know, really horrible or bad or painful, there's always a part of my mind... A tiny part of my mind, even in the most fraught situations, going, this is interesting. Is that the bit you have to kind of listen to? Yes. I've always, I've always loved puzzles. I've always loved figuring out what happened, why it's happened, who's responsible. I've always been kind of drawn to those puzzles. And, and a forensic anthropologist 
somebody says, you know, you, you help solve a crime, but ultimately whatever evidence you provide to the police, um, you are providing one little little bit of a puzzle that they put into the bigger picture. And it's very much that accumulative knowledge of the police that ultimately leads to people being prosecuted and, and found guilty or otherwise, but we just have our little bit and we hand that over. But that little bit of the puzzle is fascinating. I'm going to put a shocking proposition to you now, Santhi, which is that shows like CSI might not be exactly like real life. No, that's why I learned all my skills. <laughs> what are you talking about? How far from the truth is a show like that, where the forensic anthropologist sweeps in, goes, ah, there it is. And then five minutes later, they nab the guy. And that's that. Well, you know, I'm going to, you know, have to agree. It's not real. Not at all. I can't watch them. I, I love Midsummer Murders and some of those British dramas. Right. But CSI, no, you know, not all people attending scenes are, they're all hot and they're all young and they're all made up and they're not wearing the, the hot, I would call it a bunny suit, like the Tyvek white suit that you cook in in summer that's really hot. They're not wearing any of that. So, you know, why would they want to protect the scene from contamination, right? So, no, it's not real. And, um, yeah, I, I can't watch it because I just end up shouting at the television. <laughs> Throwing food at it. Yeah, no, it's, it's not for me. I, I suppose you're looking for a story, in the remains, aren't you? But do you find often that the remains seem to be telling you like several different stories? Um, this, it can be confusing sometimes um, when you're trying to pick apart some of that evidence that can be presented to you. I mean, even determining somebody's biological sex, I'm talking, you know, are they categorically kind of male or female? What, what evidence is there from the skeleton to help us narrow down Isn't that, that easy? Category. Isn't that the easy bit? Well, no. I mean, sometimes you have to categorise different features um, to determine whether they are more male or more female. And some people are hyper-masculine, and that's easy. But you get hyper-feminine too, and that's kind of easy. But in the middle, you've got this whole range. And, for example, I always thought that if my bones were found, I've got really broad shoulders, I've got really narrow hips. Um, I know that my skull is a mixture of male and female characteristics. I think they they might mistake me for a, what I would class as a gracile male because my remains are not would not look typically female. I imagine becoming a forensic anthropologist is not something you imagined for yourself as a kid or is it? I don't know. Or was it for you? No, I, wa I wanted to be a vet when I was a kid. I just didn't think I was clever enough. So um, I was always destined to be a dancer, actually. My mum was a professional dancer and my dad was an engineer and um, my mum was very keen that I followed in her footsteps. I had some natural ability, but I don't think I was that good, to be honest. Um, but I followed that path and I thought that that was what I would do until I got a little bit older and thought I wanted to do something more academic. Your mum wanted you to be a dancer instead of... You kept giving her pictures of your hand inside a cow or something like that? Well, I, I do remember when I was about 10, I was reading this book about Jack the Ripper and I, I used to go to the library every weekend with my dad and get books out and I remember looking at it and it was a, obviously a factual book about Jack the Ripper. There were photos in it and I was just fascinated with who he may have been and I remember thinking then, I'm not sure mum and dad would be too keen about this because I wasn't disturbed by it. I thought it was interesting but um, the images were probably pretty graphic for a, a young kid to be looking at. The story of Jack the Ripper is fascinating. There are many possible people he might have been. Everyone's got their own theory on who that person might have been. But it seems to me like watching the ritual of those ghastly murders, that there was some kind of magic rite at work in the killer's mind. Is that something you need to be mindful if you're working on a potential murder case, that there's some kind of hidden language that's going on that's relevant to the killer that might, might be very hard to discern? 
Well, there generally are with serial offenders, serial sex offenders or serial killers. They're, they're, we would just class it as a ritualistic behaviour. So they add things in that really add a signature as it were, that you can help identify who that person is because they will adapt that signature and maintain it across their crimes and that can actually help you identify them once, you, once you've noticed what key elements there are in that signature. But it doesn't mean it'll always be the same because as they offend, they try different things, their, motive, their method of crime actually improves because people get better at things when they practice and then, you know, they, they adapt different things and they go, oh, I really enjoyed that, so I'll keep that. Oh, they get interested in new things. Yeah, and they'll try that, but maybe it didn't, they didn't enjoy it, so they won't do that next time. So there will be variations in the expression of those signatures. So you're looking at books of Jack the Ripper as a kid and you want yeah. to be a vet and doing all that sort of thing. What kind of a kid were you then? In, in, in This is England or Scotland we're talking about um, So I was born in Scotland, but I moved to the border of Wales. So I was there until I was seven and then I was in England. So I moved around a little bit. I was a total tomboy. I was doing all the things that the boys were doing. I was climbing the trees, falling out of the trees, driving my mum crazy because I was always, you know, doing things to injure myself and come home with like knees with no skin left on them and all of that and playing football with the boys so yeah I was uh, I was an honorary boy when when I was a kid yeah I was just doing all the things the boys loved doing and I loved animals as well and she never wanted to empty my pockets when I was a child because I would always have rescued a worm or something <laughs> and I'd have that in my pocket and she'd like put her hand into my pocket to wash my trousers or something and pull it out with like trepidation because who knew what would be in there that I would be caring for. You don't mind if we frisk you for worms before you leave the building today, do no, you? No, frisk <laughs> away. I don't, I don't, I don't save worms anymore because I know they're better off on the ground but okay, then good. I thought I could care for that. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with it but... Your grandparents, you've said, were a very big influence on you. How were they uh, such a big influence on you? So my mum's parents I was very close to when I was young. They were basically second set of parents, really. They lived down in Cornwall, and for anyone who doesn't know the geography of the UK, um, we kind of, I spent most of my time, I guess, just outside of London in, in kind of green space, just outside of London, the green belt. But they lived down in Cornwall, and that's that little tip right down in the corner of the foot, as it were, of kind of the UK. And... I spent a lot of time down there. They lived on the top of a cliff overlooking the sea and I had this life of freedom when I was a kid. I was either down there or they were with us and, yeah, I had a, a great life with them. They sport us, obviously. That's what grandparents do. But, yeah, it was like having two sets of parents. It was amazing. So now tell me about an accident you had when you were in your late teens and the accident that cha helped you change direction in life. It did, yeah. So I was um, studying for my A-levels at this point. I decided I didn't want to continue to be a professional dancer. I wanted to go to university. So I was doing the exams that you need to do to get into university, which are called your A-levels in the UK. And one of my friends who was I was studying English with actually had a head trauma during the course. And so he had a little bit extra time. And so I waited behind to see how he did in the exam. And on my way home, I was waiting at some traffic lights, only about five minutes from my house. And there was a house on the right that was having its drive re-tarmacked. And so there were temporary traffic lights. I had gone through that morning on my way to my exam and they weren't there. But in the afternoon, I got stuck at these traffic lights waiting. As we pull off, a car came round the bend the other way. It was actually a van and failed to stop at the lights because there was traffic building up on his side. He came onto my side and squashed my car. I was in a little car. He was in a two-ton van. Um, so my car was kind of concertinaed backwards between him and the bank. And all I actually remember from that, I don't remember seeing him coming. I just remember 
a blue van, like the blue front of a van with black bull bars. And that's all I can remember from that. Um, and then uh, I hit my head. I broke the window with my head, which is not an easy thing to do. I must have a very thick skull because I didn't crack my skull. Damaged my knee really badly, though, on the steering column. Um, but they, the guys working on the road actually got me out of the car. And I remember looking at the car, which was squashed, thinking... That looks pretty bad. And I was looking at me thinking, well, obviously my knee's a mess because that was it was an open compound fracture of my patella. So I had a big six-inch open wound on my knee, on my left knee. But I thought, you know, the rest of me doesn't look too bad given what the car looks like. Um, it's I, funny the thoughts you have in those situations. Yeah. I was just sitting on the road and everyone's, like, staring at me and I felt really self-conscious. And the car that was at the back of the queue he would have hit had this little old couple in it and a dog in the back. They had a, a retriever in the boot. And I remember thinking, if he'd gone straight on, he'd have killed that dog for sure. And the little old lady come over and she was holding my hand and I had glass all over my hands and between my fingers and she was like squashing my fingers and I was thinking, ow. But I didn't want to tell her that she was hurting my hand because she was trying to be really nice and I was just like, oh, could you just, no, not squash my fingers because <laughs> I had all this glass but, and she was cutting my fingers but she was trying to be nice. Now you had a very badly damaged knee and there's a, a, a gigantic cluster of nerves in the knee so you know, the, that's why the practice of kneecapping is, is done is because it's so particularly painful. It doesn't sound like you were aware of pain or were you in, in the knee? I mean you must no, have been in agony. No, I wasn't in pain at that point. There's probably so much adrenaline Shock. you know, bounding through your system. I wasn't in any pain. And so I just waited. Ambulance came, obviously went off to hospital. I had emergency surgery that night. It was a very long night because I I woke up after the surgery in the middle of the night and nobody could tell me if I was going to be able to walk again because that was the question before I'd gone into surgery. They couldn't tell me. So I had to wait till the surgeon came round in the morning. And then I've had 11 surgeries on it since. And one of my surgeons told me I'm never going to do a marathon, but I've done a half marathon and I still run. I'm one of those really stubborn people. Tell me I can't do something and I'm absolutely going to give it a go. What do you think that protracted period in hospital did for you? Basically, life fell apart after that. I was in hospital for, I don't know, a few days, then went home. I'd always had a tense relationship with my mother and sister at this point, and now I'm in full leg plaster. I also had quite a serious head injury, which wasn't really looked at in hospital, but as, you know, as I said, I broke the window with my head, and by the time the ambulance crew got there, you couldn't put your hand over the lump on my head, so they probably should have looked at that in hospital because I could well have had an organic uh, brain trauma as well. But certainly everything changed. All my social life was around sport. All my friends played sport. I played sport. I Everything was very active. I was always very active. So suddenly I couldn't do the things my friends were doing. I was in plaster. Everyone gives you chocolate. They just bring you chocolates. And I'm used to burning off all this energy and I can't burn it off. And for people listening who exercise regularly, that's a nightmare when you're literally just stationary and you can't do anything. And so... I was at home with my mum and sister and my grandfather actually got really sick when I was in plaster and actually died while I was in plaster. And so my family went off to Cornwall and it was decided I wasn't well enough to go. And I was really close to him. My grandmother had died when I was 13, but I was 20 at this point and I obviously felt really guilty about not being able to be there. Um, but I couldn't make that trip. It was like a four-hour drive down to down to Cornwall. Um, yeah, and I ended up moving out of my house when I was still in plaster about two weeks after my accident, moved in with my boyfriend, which was probably not a good idea because that was like an enforced moving in rather than, a, you know, an excited, let's move in together. Um, so, yeah, it was very difficult and I've had a very difficult relationship with my mum and sister ever since. What kind of decisions did you make about your future, though? 
in that at that time? Well, at that time, I didn't know what I was doing. I was meant to be going to university in the September. This would have been in the June, and I was meant to be going in September to do a sports degree. Again, you're very active, and I wanted to work with disabled kids in sport. And then suddenly, that was gone too. So my whole future just imploded. My family life had imploded everything. And I couldn't go. I needed a letter saying I was fully fit to go and do that degree. And I was never going to get that given, I think, six months after my initial accident and the first emergency surgery, I had another one. And then I had another one a year later. And it just went on like that. Every few months, I was having another surgery. So, But at some point, the word Australia crept into your head. Yeah, well, just because I needed to... I just needed to get away. So um, my dad has a brother and sister who both came here as £10 poms. So I probably hatched the plan with my dad. My mum wasn't too keen on it. She didn't think I was in the right headspace to go off on my own to Australia, but I absolutely was. Um, I've always been, I think, more independent than she really understands. So I came over and I stayed with my dad's brother to start with up in Queensland and then travelled around Australia a bit and then stayed in Perth with my aunt. And it was be- it was the best thing I could have done. How at home did you feel? When, I mean, because it's uh, we, Australians like to imagine that, oh, you walk off the plane and go, oh, I love it straight away. Yeah, but well, it was in that, fact, it, it could was be like flies that. and humidity as well. But, no, but no, it was like that? It was literally like that. Really? I got off the plane it was like, I'm home. And I knew then, I mean, as I said, I was only 20. I went back for my 21st birthday and I knew then that I'd come back to Australia and I was pretty sure I was going to live here, actually. I loved it, yeah. I just felt totally at home as soon as I got here. So when you got back to the UK, you began studying archaeological sciences, found a new path for yourself, and you began to look at human skeletons and the human body. What did you like about that work? I liked evolution. I liked understanding adaptation, how the body adapts individually as well as on a population level. But it wasn't really my desire to... I didn't kind of come back and go, oh, archaeological sciences is my future. I just needed something to do. So I just need to choose a degree. Right, and that was in A. In well, the, in, maybe in maybe it was that simple, you know. <laughs> I just came back and went, what am I going to do? I've right. got to do something. So I thought, yeah, that looks interesting. And when I got there, I didn't expect to love it the way I did. And I loved learning. I always loved learning. I was that little geeky kid who not only did my homework on time, but I did extra. And not because I wanted to, like, you know, get the teachers on side, just because I really loved learning stuff. So I loved university. I get to spend, like, three years just embedded in something that I really enjoyed. So, yeah, anything to do with humans, adaptation, I'm not interested in pots or buildings, no. But if you bury someone or they're dead or I can look at their bones... You go, hello. I'm in. Right, there it is. Right. So then for your Masters, you went to Cambridge University and you decided to hone in on research into the human head and face in particular... What aspect of that were you trying to discover you were, were you, were, that you were researching at Cambridge? So I wanted to look at how the human head and face adopts, adapts to extreme environment on a population level. So, for example, I looked at a lot of um, cold adapted populations like Eskimos, so those from Greenland, etc. And I looked at a number of populations from very hot places. And what I found was certain features of the face, specifically the nose, for example, adapts on a population level. So if you think about an Eskimo's face, you will imagine a very broad face with a very flat, broad nose, right? That's what everyone thinks. Well, that feature, the nose being broad and flat, actually allows the air when you breathe in to be warmed slightly before it hits the lungs. So it has an evolutionary benefit So therefore, the flat noses have been 
genetically bred into that population because they're beneficial to that population. And so the head and face is is very plastic and adaptable, as is the rest of the body. But I want to look at it, yeah, on that big scale rather than on an individual. It's basis. kind of it's kind of fascinating. You think of how much human beings culturally have invested in that different looking face from a different part of the world, when in fact it's, pro- it's one of the most plastic parts of the human body that, if anything, it sort of misleads us a bit. It sort of shows, it tends to indicate we're more different than we really are underneath the skin. Yeah, we're all un- we're all the same underneath. Yeah. But, but look at the differences in dogs. They're pretty much all the same. But look at these different traits we've bred into them. I don't know. I don't know. Some of those things I've seen poking its head out of a handbag, that, uh, that's not like a wolf at all. But we've think. done that to that dog, if you think. <laughs> I, I like Rottweilers, but I've got friends who've like got these um, you know, dash hounds and they're like very, very close genetically. But you stick a Rottweiler next to a dash hound and tell me that they look like very close siblings. This is all very true. So then you move on to its PhD program. Project, which was a, a project to map the human face. In what way? What, what was this work involving? So this was part, partly funded by the FBI and they wanted to know, um, firstly, the question was improving methods of CCTV identification. So we were looking at basically landmarking a lot of faces. By landmarking, I mean putting points on certain anatomical areas of the face, so the tip of the nose, corners of the eyes, corners of the mouth, um, the breadth of the face as well, so the ears, so trying to basically measure the differences between faces. And they wanted to know if there was an average face in the population. So we actually photographed, we used eight cameras to build a 3D model of faces, then we landmarked them all. So you're looking for an average face? We were looking for an uh, like average a, a, face. And then say, so then in the case of this person, their ears are longer how, or shorter, the nose is flatter, longer, uh, what, ha- what have you. Exactly, how far they are from that average face. And we photographed 3,000 people. So this was a big study, not just me. I didn't do all of them, but um, I did photograph a significant number. And then we landmarked those twice. So we had 6,000 samples. And the conclusion was there is no average face. So, <laughs> so, But we did, we obviously had all of that data that we could draw on to determine, you know, the variability, the, you know, the maximum variability across all of those features and how individual faces really are. And did you go to the FBI to present your findings? Yeah, I did. I got to go to Quantico. It was awesome. Like um, X-Files Quantico? Like uh, Silence of the Lambs Quantico? Silence of the Lambs Quantico. So we, we went there and I was in awe. You know, everyone's seen the movies and yeah, everyone knows Quantico, right? And, and is I, it like the movies? Yeah, it really is. Really? That, so they've got this big compound and you're driven through it and an FBI agent showed us around and all he wanted to show us was where the Silence of the Lambs was filmed. Oh, this is where Clarence Starling made that phone call. And I, it was so it was so odd because he obviously thought that was super cool, whereas I thought being at Quantico was, was super, super cool. cool. And did you see like people jogging in hoodies with FBI written All in big that. letters? You All saw of, that? Yeah. Wow. And I saw we drove past the the firing range, and they were like, "This is the firing range. The targets are over there." And I was like, "You mean the bit we can't even really see? It's so far away." I was like, "Serious? People can shoot that." Like, it was amazing. I, I loved it. It was the best best trip I could have done as a PhD student. Imagine me. And then we're sitting around this oval table and I get to present my results to all these FBI agents and they have to listen to me. Right. I, but I, I suppose what they want is scientists to provide them with some kind of a magic wand to say, well, we can now, science can give you this tool that makes your work a lot easier. But is your job to say there is no typical prototypical face? Well, we said there was no typical face, but ultimately, you know, facial reconstruction and recognition and, and has come so far since those early, we're talking 2000 and 
five, six, I was doing that. So it was the building blocks of where we are today with automated recognition, etc. Yeah, and it's kind of gone into some dark places too, where various authoritarian nations are using those kind of biometrics to build surveillance states in various parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, there will always be those kind of uses, but ultimately you can use it when you're looking for terrorists at airports too. So the application... That comes down to the government of the day, Um, but really it's the science helps us to identify people and exclude people if we don't believe that they are actually the person in the images. So you went back to Scotland and started working in a forensic lab there. What was the nature of that work? So that was at the University of Dundee. It was in the Centre for Anatomy and Human Identification and I was very lucky to get that lectureship pretty much straight out of PhD and I was working with some of the best forensic scientists in the country. It was probably one of the best known forensic science provision um, providers in the country and now it's the Leverhulme Centre for Forensic Science. So yeah, it's really done great work there and I was very lucky to be part of that team and some of the cases that we worked on um, were the standard skeletal identification cases. Others, we were asked to compare images that were found on somebody's computer or on their mobile phone showing various elements of their anatomy. And um, a number of those were in alleged child sexual abuse cases. So they had somebody's hand, for example, abusing a child and they wanted to know, is the person that we have, the suspect, the same as the person who's in those images or are they holding and potentially distributing those images? And, and with, when you're looking at that photograph of a hand, how can, what, what are the kind of determining factors you can look at in that image to see how they might pertain to the hand of a suspect? So anything on the surface anatomy. So if you look at your own hand, you can see vein patterns on the back of your own hands. Now, the superficial vein patterns in everybody are unique to you and they are partly genetic. So there will be a similarity in the patterns between the back of your hands if you look at those. But the superficial ones, they're not driven by any particular anatomical function. The deep ones are. You need veins in certain places, you know, and arteries. But if you look at them, you can actually map those and everyone's will be different and your right and left hand will be different because they are partly a result of pressure and the the embryonic pressure in the uterus so they're going to be different fingerprints are different for the same reason even your own fingerprints identical quins they're different so we look at vein patterns we looked at knuckle creases we looked at the back of the nails and so yeah we compared all of those features what kind of weight can be brought to bear with that kind of evidence? Is it as good as a fingerprint or something? does it fall short of that? It would definitely fall short of fingerprint evidence, although fingerprint evidence is now classed as opinion evidence as well. So you will have an expert that will give an opinion in court as to whether two fingerprints or more in a case um, are originate from the same person. So with all of these kind of novel biometrics, so bio means life, metric to measure, so with all of these novel kind of biometrics, techniques. I would never say that it is this person categorically. That's not really the role. What you can say when you do these comparisons is that there's a number of features that are comparable, that are similar, nothing that excludes that person. So you can give an opinion as to whether the two sets of images could have originated from the same source or the same person. Can you use it to rule people out by the same token? Yeah, you definitely can use it to rule people out. And you can also look at um, the kind of the knuckle creases and nail beds and scars. And so if there's a feature there that indicates that it's not the same person, that can be really powerful because the police can obviously exclude suspects or persons of interest from their inquiry because we can say it's, it's not that person.
Podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. In the UK, you were brought in as an expert for the BBC TV series History Cold Case. Tell me about this fascinating case you were brought in, which concerned a whole lot of skeletons that were found in the middle of Norwich, the, t- the town of Norwich, the city centre there. Yeah, well, we did loads of great cases. And in fact, that was when I was at the University of Dundee and my boss, Professor Dame Sue Black, loved doing radio. She hated doing television. But like you mentioned CSI earlier, we were getting lots of students wanting to apply to our forensic anthropology course, which is a science-based course. It's a biology-driven course. and But they'd watch CSI and they'd go, oh, you just push a button, right? And it gives you like their last known address and their name and everything else and go, well, no. And so they wanted to become forensic anthropologists with no clue as to what the scientific background was. So Sue's great idea, the BBC in the UK came to us and she went, we can use this as a platform to educate people about what forensic science really is. And I want to do it, but I don't want to face it. And so she's like, so that's what you're going to do. And I was like, right, okay. Right. (laughs) Right, okay, right, this is what we're doing now. So, yeah, I got to go all over the UK and all the cases we looked at, they weren't famous, they were just skeletal remains and they were archaeological, some of them dated back hundreds of years. But if there's one thing the British are good at is keeping records and we did go, I did go and look at all of the archaeological records to determine how much we could learn about these people historically as well as from their remains. We applied all the forensic techniques, we reconstructed their faces, we looked at stable isotopes which can tell you about diet. So we take bone samples and tell us what those people were eating when they were alive. And not eating it by the same time. And not so, eating. Yeah, so what, was malnutrition there, and what have you. Yeah, yeah. Or were they eating predominantly a marine-based diet? It can tell you all of that kind of information. So we did all of that. Yeah, and we, we found some amazing stories. Each one of them, even though they weren't famous, people always go, oh, what are these big famous stories? Well, each set of remains was a story in itself and they were fascinating and there was one um, there was one set or group of remains from Norwich that ended up being um, probably Ashkenazi Jews and they were in this well in Norwich. Oh, was it a pogrom? It was some kind of attack on the whole Jewish community. Well, we weren't. It? We were never really sure because the Jewish community were telling us when we looked into this that there was there were no Ashkenazi Jews, but the DNA was telling us for sure that they were that particular subgroup of the population because they tend to intermarry. So genetically, they're really tight. So you could actually take their genes back to a religion, which is unusual. And, and was it, were these medieval uh, remains? Yeah, you're testing me yeah, now. Yeah, I did but, that a but, long time ago. Yeah. I can't remember what, what like... But that seems to have really sinister overtones. It to, did, yeah. and, and we just didn't know... Yeah, we didn't know why they were there. Um, But it was a fascinating story and certainly we we learned all these kind of bits of history that were hidden before that. I found this other one that was probably a knight. Um, We found, we looked at some juvenile juvenile remains, some children's remains. Um, So we, all sorts of things were were uncovered during that. It was amazing doing that. I did two sets of... All these stories under the soil of these kind of quite quite everyday sort of places. That's what we should have called it, stories under the soil. Uh, Stories under the soil. You know, the people going, 
going about their shopping and walking over the over the graves of these of these people who've died in extraordinary and probably horrific circumstances in the past. But you always wanted to come back to Australia. When did you finally make it back here for good? So we had the uh, global financial crisis in two thousand and eight, and really that really affected especially academia in the UK in terms of funding, etc. And so I was married, but I didn't have any children. So still pretty agile and flexible. And I'd always wanted to come back. So in 2011, I suppose, I started thinking about it. And 2000, the end of 2011, I was offered a position at the University of New England in criminology. So I decided to move sideways into kind of behavioural sciences rather than sticking with the hard sciences of forensics, although I still work in that space as well. I now combine the two. So, yeah, I was offered a, a lectureship and haven't looked back. In 2014, you went to cover a story for a TV show in Australia in the Belanglo Forest. Tell me about this case. So, yeah, in 2014, I was working on a series called Wanted for Channel 10. I was one of the co-hosts of that series. And my role was really as a kind of forensic expert and criminological expert. So I was asked to go and look at a case of a young woman whose remains were found in Belanglo State Forest. And everyone kind of assumed Ivan Malat because that's what they think when they think Belanglo. An unidentified woman? Unidentified human remains. She was in her 20s. Um, the police had been trying. She'd been discovered by trail bike riders in 2010. She wasn't a Malat victim because he was already incarcerated. They knew that when she died. Her remains were skeletonized. They knew her height. They knew that she was Caucasian. Um, they knew um, they had DNA, they had dental work, but she was not on a missing persons database. So they hadn't identified her. So we arranged to have her face reconstructed as part of the programme. We put that out. It was really to generate new leads for the police because this case had gone cult. So you helped the facial reconstruction of this of, of this body? So I didn't do that. Uh, a woman called Susan Hayes, Dr Susan Hayes down at Wollongong, did that. and we But we used that in the programme the young woman's hair was also recovered, so we had distinct lengths of hair that were built into that reconstruction. And I explained on the programme how a facial reconstruction works. So part of my role was educational, but we didn't get her identified ultimately. So that was, I think that may have been 2013, actually. And then in 2015, the news broke of a toddler's remains being found in a suitcase in South Australia. South Australia, quite some way from the Belanglo State Forest. Thousands of kilometres away. Right. Thousands of kilometres away. And so... That child's remain, she was around two, and there was a blanket in there that was homemade in the suitcase with the remains, as well as this little pink dress. And so this was publicised to try and generate some leads as to who this, this toddler, this child may be. And somebody called um, from the Northern Territory to say, I know that dress. They sent in a photo of a child wearing the dress of the right age. And they also knew the blanket because it had been made for the child by her grandmother. And so the child was actually then identified via a Guthrie or heel prick test back at a sample that was held at the hospital from when she'd been born. All right, the heel prick test, the babe, newborn Correct. babies again. They still had it. So they did a DNA analysis to confirm that the child's remains were in fact uh, Candelise Pierce, who was the child. The question was then, well, where's Carly? Where's her mother? We've now we found the child. And so they did a comparison um, to, they looked for basically a biographical profile of all of the unidentified deceased across the country and Carly came up in New South Wales. And so then a familial DNA link was made between Candelise and Carly to identify that they were mother and daughter. Now, the killer was later found to be a man named Daniel James Holdom. Tell me how he'd been trying to throw the police off the scent of, of 
the deeds he'd perpetrated. Yeah, so he'd killed uh, Carly first and taken her to Blangelo Forest. Then he'd taken he'd taken Candelise, he'd picked her up, he was staying in the ACT at the time, and taken her down to South Australia. And in the interim, he was accessing Carly's social security, he was sending what I would call proof-of-life messages to her family. So they did initially make a missing persons report and then they get these messages. She was kind of estranged oh, from like her text family. text messages, you mean. Exactly. Right, right. So she, she wasn't in close contact with them. They weren't on the phone, but he sent enough proof-of-life messages asking for money, which they provided. Um, so it was partly financial, the motivation, but he was proving basically that she was alive. Her bank account was being accessed, so the missing persons report was closed. So no, that's why no one was looking for her. No one knew anything about what had happened to this mother and daughter until those remains were found and identified. Then they started to look at who were the last people she was seen with. They looked at social media. Who, was, who were they in photos on social media with? And they came across Daniel Holdham. And he's now serving two life sentences for their murder. I was, yeah, I was in court, actually, when he was sentenced for that. And so were her family. Candelise and Carly's family were in court. And they were incredibly stoic and brave throughout the sentencing. And, yeah, I sat there and watched him. Be, I wanted to see that one through. I felt connected to that case, having tried to identify in 2013 and failed. But I was very pleased she was identified and she could be returned to her family, as could Candelise. So on the one hand, such people like that, it's satisfying to see such people being brought to justice. But there's a flip side to your work. You also set up a thing called the Justice Clinic at the University of Newcastle, looking into wrongful convictions using DNA, DNA and other evidence to look into cases of wrongful convictions. What are some of the common causes of these maddening wrongful convictions, Santhi? Sometimes it can be um, expert evidence that goes wrong. So experts either misrepresent evidence or the weight that's attached to evidence is wrong and it kind of misleads a jury to thinking that something is more influential than it should be. It can be that the police get tunnel vision. I've seen that a number of times and I'm not disparaging the police at all. I think they do amazing work but that they have been known to produce verbal confessions in in the in the past that has been that has happened Mm. yeah you know you do get these kind of renegade officers who who sometimes follow the wrong path um and eyewitness testimony is also another huge problem and also um withholding of evidence at trial like when the prosecution doesn't disclose evidence to the defence that could be exculpatory, as I would describe it, that could actually provide a good defence to the accused. So there's a number of places it can go wrong, but those are really some of the systematic ones that we see commonly. These cases are maddening, and I can't imagine how maddening they are for the poor person who has been wrongfully convicted and sent to jail. Do you find that such people, are they able to hang on to some hope of justice for themselves down the track? Or do they do they quite commonly lose all hope of 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 being found innocent of this this terrible miscarriage of justice? Well, the ones who come to the justice clinic at work obviously are holding out hope that somebody will help them. We only look at cases where all the appeals have been concluded, so not, you know, whilst there's an appeal potentially outstanding, we don't get involved. We kind of come in at the end of the process when all hope has kind of gone, I guess. And so the ones that have come to us they are the battlers and the ones that I've, the cases I've seen overturned are people who never gave up fighting, but also they have a white knight on the outside. It's a family member, it could be a journalist, it could be somebody from the legal profession or it could be somebody like us. There are other 
innocence initiatives around the country, but we call ourselves a justice clinic instead because we do work with the potentially wrongfully convicted, but we also look at missing long-term missing persons cases, cold cases. So our work is broader than just innocence, but they, they need that battler on the outside. More recently, you've been looking into the cases where doctors and nurses, nurses, healthcare people uh, have turned out to be killers and in fact serial killers. Now, we hardly need to say that these people are extremely rare in the healthcare system. We, we should make that point though, nonetheless. What did you learn though about such people like who are perpetrating such, such utterly creepy and vile murders? Well, this came about because in the UK, recently, a woman called Lucy Letby was found guilty of murdering six neonates. She was a neonatal nurse and she's been accused... Newborn babies. Newborn babies. Sorry, she was found guilty of murdering seven and and found guilty of attempting to murder a further six. And I heard in just the last couple of days that there will be an eighth child that she's going to be accused of having murdered. And she's an interesting an interesting character. And I kind of picked this apart with my good friend and colleague, Tim Watson Monroe, who's a criminal psychologist on... We do our own podcast and we did a special episode on this. We talked about all of the different types of medical serial killers, so the doctors, the Harold Shipmans of the world who are those angels of death, as we call them, and that is when men like that kill, it's really power over life and death, that kind of God complex, and partly financial in his case as well. But with Lucy Letby, so she was um, convicted just very recently. She was a very is a very quiet character, very diminutive. She kind of blends into the background. She's really, you know, nothing special, as you would say. And I think she did it partly for attention, so that we see that commonly with female healthcare serial killers, the attention they get when a baby dies. So remember, she's on this neonatal ward. She's got primary care for these incredibly vulnerable children. And when they die, oh, no. everyone gives her sympathy. All this drama that's yeah, created Yeah, all the drama, exactly, that she is the centre of attention. So uh, for men, typically, what you're saying then is it's like this little filthy secret. They've got, I, I have this power and no one knows what I've been doing. It's this kind of creepy story they tell themselves of, of power and, and dominance. But for, for women, typically, it's more typically it's about getting attention. Getting attention. And in Lucy Letby's case too, there's um, the potential that she was also in love with one of the male doctors who was the emergency responder in the neonatal unit, or one of them. So he would be the man who would show up when an emergency took place. So he's the guy that would be called when one of these deaths or, or almost deaths happened in six cases. And she was found guilty, basically, on the basis that she was the only one who had access to all of those children in all of those emergency scenarios. You wrote a book called Mothers Who Kill. Now, we all know now the truth of... Lindy Chamberlain's innocence, the very poor way that the the case against her was was put together. Um, When there are such cases where a woman is suspected of having killed her own children, why, why are people so quick to hang the crime on the mother in these cases? There seems to be something going on there that, oh, she must have done it because she doesn't look right. She doesn't yep. have this, the right facial expression. She doesn't, she's not weeping openly. What's, what's going on in people's minds? Why are they so quick to, to burn the witch in well, these cases? And I think that's exactly it. It's the Lindy Chamberlain effect, isn't it? We all remember the footage of Lindy Chamberlain going into court after being accused of murdering Azaria all those years ago. Grim-faced. Yeah. Stoic, grim face, not emotional, not crying, not doing all the things that people expect. And I think that a number of other women have been 
basically judged by the public on the same ground. So I'm talking about Kathleen Folbig, Kelly Lane, all these women, they didn't cry. They didn't, they didn't do, you know, they weren't the, the weeping mother that, that the public wanted to see. And ultimately, in Kath's case, I mean, I raised problems with that case in 2014 in Mothers Who Murder, but it was also Mothers Who Murder, colon, and infamous miscarriages of justice. And I actually started with Lindy Chamberlain's case because I wanted people to read the book with an open mind. And I raised doubt in Kathleen Folby's case as well as Kelly Lane's case. And it was a really unpopular thing to do then. I got totally vilified. I got trolled. And because people want to silence you. It's like, how dare you stick up for, quote, a baby killer? There was always reasonable doubt in that case, always. And so now the science has eventually caught up and shown us that the, a genetic abnormality is likely responsible for Sarah and Loy's death, the two girls in the Folby case. Yet reasonable doubt was always in existence. In the Lindy Chamberlain case, how did you find that the expert witnesses in her case had acted? Oh, well, that was a whole big mess. It was a hot mess, wasn't it? That case, the 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 blood evidence in the car that wasn't even blood, the timeline that never worked. People still ask me if Lindy Chamberlain did it. And I was like, she didn't didn't kill Azaria any more than I did. It's not possible in any world that we exist in. And so the experts in that case, you know, there was very damaging evidence as there was in the Folbig case. You sometimes work at a place called a taphonomy facility. Have I pronounced that right? Yes. What is a taphonomy facility? Taphonomy relates to what happens to the body after death, so decomposition. So there's a facility on the outskirts of Sydney. Actually, it's run by UTS just across the road from where we are today. And we look at human decomposition and all the elements that go with that. So chemical, biological, um, we look at the environment in which these remains decompose to the point of looking at decomposition is better establishing time since death because that is a key factor the police need answered when they find a set of remains, they go, well, how long have they been there? So how do you examine that? Do you photograph the body over time as it decays? Well, that's what my particular project with a number of colleagues from UNSW, uh, we actually have mapped two sets of remains now, two bequeathed remains, donors who have donated their body to the program at UTS, and we have photographed them in time lapse. And so have the whole process from freshly deceased laid out at the facility with all of these cameras capturing all of that activity, including quite a lot of movement, actually, that happens after death. The arms move and stuff. You'd be amazed. What? Serious, the arms move more than we would have imagined. We're watching it in time-lapse going, what is happening? It's to do with the foreshortening of various tissues as, as the body decomposes. But I'm talking quite a lot of movement that we never, we didn't know about. Oh, God, are you losing your mind when you watch this stuff? Like, it's hard enough. <laughs> it but was so... If, if it starts it to was, move while it's decomposing, that's, that's, that's doing my head in. It was so interesting. It was like, huh, we would have thought that maybe a creature had moved it, but no, because we've got it on time-lapse, the arm's actually moving away from the body. Amazing. Nobody had done that before. So this is obviously a critical factor, knowing about the rate of decomposition in bodies when they're found uh, in the wild, so to, so to speak, isn't it? What are all the variable factors at work here? Oh, we could be here for the next year talking about all the variable factors. It's to do with the individual themselves. Are they clothed? Are they unclothed? What? Um, how much activity, insect activity is available? Are there scavenger activity? Are they in a car? Is it hot? Is it cold? What? What? height are they at in terms of, you know, um, above sea level? Literally, we could go on forever talking about variables that affect decomposition. But we didn't have before this facility any way of mapping that in an Australian environment at all. All the data we relied on was from the US. And we're very different environmentally to the US, obviously. I think there are two ways of looking at such 
events. On the one hand, you have the, the ghastliness of it, the horror of it, the, the, the smell must be just extraordinary. But then there's another way to look at it too, which is to see this kind of extraordinary natural process at work where bacteria and insects and whatever else are breaking down a body, returning its components to the soil or to to wherever. Are you able to keep those two things separate in your mind when you're yep, looking at these things? Totally. I mean, it's an organic process, isn't it? And we're learning. Again, we're trying to figure out what happens, why in this particular environment. And again, to help the police in identifying human remains. So to some, I guess there would be horror in that. To me, there's a humanitarian element to that when we're trying to help people. Now, I know people can donate their bodies to science for anatomical research at universities. A friend of mine has, has done that for her own body. Can people donate their own bodies for such research? Yeah, absolutely. People always ask me for bequeathal forms when I tell them about the work that we really? do. Really? So at UTS, you can choose to leave your body through the bequeathal program to the medical side, or you can actively choose to leave your body to the forensic side. And you'd be surprised how many people want to do that because they understand that when somebody has died and they're unidentified, ultimately we're trying to give them their name back and return them to their family. So they understand the power of that and we're incredibly respectful. We, we consider them our silent teachers and, you know, we really value and feel very privileged for, the, for people to donate their back. They're going to have mine. When I'm done being an organ donor, UTS are getting my body. Really? Yeah, right. for sure. Wow. For sure. I suppose there must be people who think that doing this line of work would be, make you somewhat unusual, a bit weird, <laughs> but then... Like, I, I just can't even imagine walking into that room. I, I, I think I could maybe watch it on a video, but I don't know how I could walk into that room. But, but I'm also thinking at the same time, there's always this one hand on the other hand thing going on, that it's only recently we were so severed from the natural process of death and human beings have witnessed these things throughout the entirety of human history. Are we the weirdos and you the only normal one here, do you think, Xanthi? Are we the strange people who've gone yuck and have become too squeamish around death and the, the natural process surrounding death? Well, death is a natural part of life, isn't it? I think maybe I'm just better at, at um, doing that and eating my lunch than some <laughs> other people are. Um, but you do, you do have to be able to not think about it. You have to be able to separate. And when people start taking it home then you can't do it anymore. But um, And it's actually an outdoor facility, so there's lots of remains out there and you wander out, you look at your donor and see what's happening. Yeah, in, in, during the Renaissance, there were public autopsies that yep. used to take place in the open air, which would attract thousands of people to come and watch, and, and some of the most noble ladies in the land would come down and sit down and watch the process take place. Uh, as you were telling me this, I got this kind of sense of your kind of really burrowing sort of curiosity. What primarily drives you? Is it that sense of curiosity or is it a strong and powerful desire for justice in this world? I think it's the combination. I think I have this this very powerful interest in puzzles and understand. I want to know everything. I want to understand everything. It drives my partner crazy because I'm always like, yeah, well, I don't understand that. I need to. I need better words. I need very specific words around that. But also really powerful sense of justice. And I really hope that we instill that in our students at the University of Newcastle because they're going to go out into the world and be the next police, community corrections, etc. And to send them out into the world with those positive ripples of having a really strong sense of justice, I think is something that hopefully I can contribute to in a very small way. Well, Santhi, it's been amazing speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.